Hello and welcome to the programme. You can visit the website anytime you like, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. A very busy program ahead of us today in the studio with me, Aina Nilana, at his home in Malahide, Richard Collins, and joining us a little bit later on, fresh off the airplane from Spain, will be Niall Hatch. Now, Richard, we're going to be talking about giraffes later on, and I see that giraffes are always voted the most popular animals to see in parks and zoos and in the wild. Is it a favourite of yours? It is very much a favourite of mine. I've seen them in lots of places in Africa. They are wonderful creatures and ridiculous creatures. I love their ridiculousness. What do you if mean you ridiculousness? Sh- Nothing well, ridiculous uh, about them. Well, uh, if you should watch them at water holes. I've seen them in Atosha and places like that. And they come up to a water hole they have to drink. They are very worried that there isn't a lion waiting to pounce. So what they do is they spread the front legs apart in a big big wide V and then slowly the neck will turns down and they start to drink and there's valves inside there that shut down the flow of the arteries if they weren't there the arteries would burst in the brain and they would die so they're wonderful that way they are extraordinary characters I love the phrase I sometimes heard out there a tower of giraffes I noticed the biologists all say a herd of giraffes but a tower of giraffes seems much more attractive what do you think? Well, it does indeed, and the tongue is extraordinary. I remember being in Photo Wildlife Park one day at the feeding station in the park where you see the keepers feeding the giraffes and they come up and they've got the longest tongue you've ever seen in all your life. It's in the region of 20 inches. What's that in today's money? About 2.54 centimetres to the inch, so about 8 inches. Oh my goodness. Anyway, Aina, you want to talk about National Tree Day, you being the President of the Tree Council of Ireland indeed. Yes, indeed. National Tree Day is happening this year on the 5th of October. It's always the first Thursday in October. This year it's Spar National Tree Day because Spar are our sponsors. And what happens on the 5th of October is that all the school children in Ireland and their teachers are encouraged to go out of doors and enjoy the trees, look at the trees, play with the trees understand the trees and indeed plant trees and to this end the Tree Council of Ireland is sending out a tree in the post to all schools that actually want one. This year we're having the hazel as the tree we're sending out and the theme you'll be glad to know is nuts about nature. Nuts Nuts about nature. Because Love it. Nuts are on the hazel tree. Hazel is the tree of wisdom and, of course, schools are centres of wisdom indeed. Why is the hazel the tree of wisdom? Because there were nine hazel trees growing on the banks of the River Boyne, for mm-hmm. though, for though, and the nuts fell off into the water and they were eaten by a salmon what lived in there. Oh, and he yes. got shock and knowledgeable altogether <laughs> eating all of those nuts. He wasn't that smart, though, because he actually got caught in the end by Finagas. But we won't go there. He got his wisdom from eating the nuts of the hazel tree and this is the story. But in actual fact, we know us scientists that... First of all, salmon don't eat nuts and secondly, they don't even feed in Irish waters. But so why would you spoil a good story with the facts? But if you go back to basics and you eat the nuts off the hazel tree, you'll have the wisdom from first principles. Do you remember that animation, Give Up Your Old Sins? I do, of course. Where do you think I was hearing the very shocking well, things from that's what from I that? Was I'm wondering, are you that young girl, Aina? <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> shocking. I'm not Dublin. She's a lovely Dublin, actually. She I'm not Dublin, you. indeed. No, but anyhow. So that's, that's National Tree Day and yep. we need to encourage people to go on the website. We have a special website for us. TreeDay.ie is the actual website. And if you go on to that, you can take the Forest Pledge and go on to get yourself a tree. 
It's a hazel tree this year, Last yes. Last year it was a holly tree. That's right. And other years we gave out things like birch and we gave out gelder rose, we gave out spindle. So you'd have a right arboretum if you had them all planted in your school now, grounds. Now I'm curious, what's the forest pledge? Oh, the oh, forest pledge. About this. Yes, so you yes. have to put your love in the air. Well, in a, in a manner of speaking, <laughs> the forest pledge is a special promise to always do your best to be a lifelong friend of the environment. And you take the pledge by clicking on the button to show your dedication to National Tree Day. I take the forest pledge and you press the button. So it's, it's, it's a, you know, a way of saying that you're serious about this, that you really want to be a lifelong friend for the environment. And of course, you're encouraged to take this by Sammy Squirrel, who has signed this with his paw print because Sammy Squirrel is the, the speaker, if you like, for the Tree Day website. Sammy is busy telling everybody about this sort of thing. And I he's thrilled this year. He's a red squirrel. He's, of course, and he's thrilled. He's thrilled this year because the hazel tree has been given out because Sammy is always the, the ambassador, if you like, and he's he's had to be there when we gave out things like Gelder Rose and we gave out things like Scott's Pine. But this year he's charmed out of his mind because we're giving out hazel trees. All right. So the date we celebrate National Tree Day again, Aina, is... Well, the date, it's one day, National Tree Day. It's Bar National Tree Day this year is on the 5th of October, which is the first Thursday in October. All right, it's only a couple of days from now, Aina. Absolutely, just coming up now at the end of the week. Now, Aina, how many bees do we have in Ireland? Oh yeah, how many bees do we have in Ireland indeed? Now, obviously we have honeybees. You're talking about species, not the number of actual bees. God knows how many we have. (laughs) So we have native bees then, which are, are bumblebees, solitary bees. So the bumblebees will have a queen, a small nest. The honeybee has a queen and a huge nest, a huge number of creatures in it. And then we have solitary bees as well. So when you added them all up together, for long, 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 it was always 99 bees. 99? Which always annoyed me. Why couldn't we have 100? Why was it 99? And then the numbers changed. We discovered more bees. And now we have 101 bees. And do you think you could name them all? Of course I could. I could Are do anything. Are you sure? I could do anything. But when I, when I start off now... Oh, well, but, wait, well, hang on. If we're going to do it, we might as well do it against the clock. Are you ready, Aina? Your time starts now. Well, in no particular order, here they are. <laughs> Number one, the fork-jawed nomad bee. <laughs> Number two, the woodcarver bee. <laughs> Number three, the red mason bee. Number four, the chocolate mining bee. Number five, the early nomad bee. Number six, the black mining bee. Number seven, the shaggy furrow bee. Sometime later... Number 95, the dull-headed blood bee. Number 96, Jeffrey's blood bee. Number 97, the black-horned nomad bee. Number 98, the furry-bellied blood bee. Number 99, the blunt-jawed nomad bee. Number 100, the ivy bee. And number 101, the hairy-footed flower bee. (laughs) What does that look like? (laughs) Well, the males and females look completely different. It was discovered just last year in, of all places, Harold's Cross Parish, which is the next parish to where I live in Dublin and nowhere else. It's only been discovered there. So it's been added to the list as well. And now we have 101 species instead of a tidy hundred. Was a tidy hundred when we got the ivy bee a couple of years ago. But now we have 101 species and I'm worn out. I bet you, have you ever seen them? Did you see the ivy bee, for example? Terry's about to tell us about it now in just a moment. Oh yeah, he gets all the good gigs. He got to go to Wexford to do it because that's the only on the East Coast is on Wexford. But I'm keeping an eye on ivy. Ivy's in flower at this time Mm. of the year and of course not only do 
bees go to it, wasps go to it as well because the ivy is a great source of nectar for these late flying creatures and of course the ivy bee only appears at this time apparently. Have you ever tasted ivy honey? It's beautiful. I have, it's I have delicious. It's really, really good. Nice. Which is amazing because ivy is actually poisonous if you were to eat the leaves and yet the, the honey is so delicious. It's sort of a solidy honey. Yeah, Hannah's Honey in Cork. We made a programme last year, remember, at the Holly and the Ivy and we spoke to her and she sells uh, ivy honey and it's uh, much sought after, so it is. Anyway, let's say hello to Terry Flanagan because Terry, it's all about the ivy bee this week and you were in County Wexford, as Aina said. Yes, Terry, comes down the sunny southeast on a beautiful sunny day as it happens. Oh, lovely. Were you on the beach? Uh, no, why? Isn't that where they made Saving Private Ryan? Because the beach apparently looked like Omaha Beach where the D-Day landings took place. Yeah, you're dead right, Eric. And mm-hmm. I think Sir Ronan did something there not so long ago, or maybe it was a good while ago, I can't she remember. She did indeed, herself and Donald Gleeson. Brooklyn, anyway, you were there to look at bees, Terence. Ivy bees of all things. Listeners may well remember we had Professor Francis Ratniex on earlier in the year mm. when he told us of the arrival of this new species of bee, the ivy bee, to Ireland. They were discovered here in Wexford about two years ago and Francis, who is Professor of Apiculture in the School of Life Sciences in Sussex University, has been travelling over to monitor their distribution throughout the country. And at this time of the year, they're very active. The young females are emerging from their nests and the congregated males compete with each other to mate with them to father the next generation. Francis brought me to two locations in County Wexford. Firstly, to see them feeding and then to show me their spectacular mating behaviour. So Terry, come down here to this ivy on this wall, which is in bloom. We can see all the yellow pollen on it. It's in full bloom. It's now middle to later September. And as you can see, it's covered in insects. There must be a hundred or more insects here. I'm looking at bumblebees. I'm looking at hoverflies. I'm looking at butterflies. They're that red admiral. They're just taking in the sun. Well, they're taking in the sun, but more importantly, they're taking in nectar and pollen. And yes, there is a red admiral and there are several of them. So butterflies are one of the insects that visit ivy. Now tell us exactly where we are. Well, we're in the village of Curraclo, about half a kilometre from the beach, and we're on the road, and on the road there's a wall, and it's covered in ivy, and the ivy is in bloom, and we're very close to where the ivy bee was first discovered in Ireland a few years ago, literally less than a kilometre from here. Okay, let's have a look at some of the uh, insects we have here. Bumblebee I see here first of all. Looks like a white-tailed bumblebee. Uh, I'm looking at, as we saw, the red admirals. I'm looking at, I don't see any honeybees. Honeybees, um, like ivy, a great deal. They visit in large numbers. But right at this moment, I've just counted 50 insects, Terry, and I didn't see a single honeybee. But normally we'd expect to see honeybees. So I'm mm-hmm. sure they'll be here shortly. But we see really everything else. Bumblebees, red admiral butterflies, ivy bees, lots of wasps, lots of hoverflies. Okay, let's move on then and let's just pick out one or two of the ivy bees because that's what we're here to look at today. So here we can see an ivy bee. This is a male. At the moment, there's roughly equal numbers of males and females. Mm -hmm. The male is smaller than the female and both the male and the female ivy bee are very easy to identify because they've got a very stripy abdomen. They've got very clear stripes. 
they should be playing rugby or football or something. They're, they're very pretty, especially the female, because she's got a kind of an orange tinge to her thorax. She's a very beautiful-looking insect, and she's exactly the same size as a honeybee. And they're feeding here now at the moment on this ivy. The honeybees and the ivy bees are collecting both pollen and nectar, but most of the other insects are just collecting nectar. It's really everything to everybody. Every insect can benefit from ivy. It's very aptly named, isn't it? The ivy bee, because here we have a mass of ivy grown on a wall and it's covered with this particular bee. Yes, um, the ivy bee does specialise on ivy. We collected pollen samples last year from females returning to their nests and it was nearly 100% ivy pollen. They can visit other species like bramble, but they don't need to because the ivy is so abundant and it's there at the right time for them. Now what we have here is we've got this mass of ivy on a wall and it's completely covered by the ivy bee and it's feeding here. But you're going to take me to another location for something different. Yes, what we're seeing here is half of the story. It's the feeding, the collecting of pollen and nectar. The other half of the story is the nesting, and they nest in the ground. They can nest in really any type of grassy ground, as long as there isn't too much grass. Each female builds her own nest, and in the ground she may build 10 or 20 cells, each of which rears one ivy bee. But hundreds, even thousands of females may nest in the same area close by in what we call a nest aggregation. So many nests all nearby to each other. Okay, well, let's, let's head on then. Yeah. Now, Terry, have a look here. Wow, I'm looking at... There must be hundreds of bees here. Hundreds. There's probably 20,000 bees in this area, which is about 100 metres across a clearing in the pine trees where last year I counted over 2,000 nests. Now what I'm looking at here is a kind of like a sand dune. It's only about two metres by two metres. There are lots of what look like nests and literally hundreds of bees swarming around in and out of the nests. We're here in the Raven, which is a nature reserve. Why are they here? Well, the reason the ivy bees are here is not because it's a nature reserve, it's because it's close to Wales, which is almost certainly where the bees originated. They colonised Britain, going from Dorset to Pembrokeshire, and then they've hopped over to Ireland, and this is one of the closest places in Ireland to Britain. And this only happened a couple of years ago. Where we are here is exactly where two years ago a local man found the ivy bee for the first time in Ireland. But it must have been here for several years because there were over a thousand nests when he found it. Now, let's just look at this aggregation that's here. Tell me exactly what's happening. What we have here is a nest aggregation where thousands of nests will be built, each by a single female. They tend to be clustered in certain mini areas like small sandy cliffs a couple of feet tall like here and also flat grassy areas where the grass is thin. Which is just like what we have here. And the bees that are flying around, are they males or females? Almost every bee you see is a male. They're flying low to the ground, just a few inches off the ground, in the hope that they'll spot a female and be able to mate. 
And are there any females inside in the nests at the moment? The females would be in the nests. Some of them would already be adults. Some of them would be in their pupil stage, not yet become adults. Others will be out foraging and coming back to the nest with pollen on their legs. And the life cycle, am I right in saying that a number of these, they don't actually develop into adults until this time of the year, September, October? Yes, the IVB is an annual species. The nests are built in the autumn, the eggs are laid and the larva develops, but they don't reach adulthood until the following autumn. So it's a whole year from egg to adult. Most people would think that if you have an adult emerging at that time of the year, September or October, that it's a bad time of the year because there's not much food for them. Well, the ivy bee is the last bee of the year, solitary bee, but there is plenty of food because the ivy is super abundant and the ivy bee specialises on ivy. So the reason it's flying at this time of year is because that's when its food plant, the ivy, is in bloom. Yes, it's unusual, the ivy, because it only goes into bloom at this time of the year, as you say, and it doesn't develop berries until probably January or February. Well, the berries provide good food for birds like pigeons, but the ivy flowers start in late August and they go on even into December. So when the ivy bees emerge from their cells, the ivy is in bloom. And when they finish their life cycle, the ivy is still in bloom. So the world of the ivy bee is one in which ivy is out there for them. A lot of bee species in Ireland, I'm thinking of the bumblebees and that, are in trouble. Now you have the ivy bee moving in and it appears to be spreading, certainly up the coast. Will this bee compete with our native honeybees? The ivy bee will compete with the honeybee and other Irish insects, but the ivy is so abundant that there's more food, more pollen and nectar than the insects can consume. And roughly half of the pollen and nectar from a study we did in England is just wasted. So there's plenty of food and plenty of resources then for this ivy bee to move into Ireland? Yes, there's plenty of resources. If the ivy bee became 10 or 50 times more common, yeah, maybe we would then think it might be competing. But for the moment, there's plenty to go round. In the two years since they've been discovered here in County Wexford, have they moved much? Well, we don't know how far they've moved. Last year I did a study and we found them up the coast in Wexford from the Raven for about 10, 15 kilometres and then again in Wicklow. So in the next couple of weeks I will be surveying with the help of some Irish colleagues the Irish coast, the east coast from Wexford to Strangford Lock in County Down and we'll see if they're found in other places. Well, we know they're in Wicklow but we'd like to know a bit more in more detail whereabouts in Wicklow are they. Do they like the coast or will they move inland? In England, they're found everywhere, not just in the coast. The coast is obviously where they first arrive and also the coast is popular. So there are lots of naturalists wa- walking up and down the coast. So we tend to get more records from coastal areas than from inland areas. So it can seem as though they're coastal, but I don't think that's the case I'm just looking here. There seems to be a group of them on the ground there and they seem to be... Are they fighting with each other? Well, one thing that you can see from time to time, and it may look a bit scary, is what we call a mating ball. So there'd be a female mating to a male and there might be five or ten, even twenty males 
that would like a piece of the action and they're sort of all hanging on to each other and they're on the ground and it looks like they're fighting. But So, so what you're seeing here is then probably one film. There's a, probably about eight bees there and they seem to be very, very active. You're telling me then that there's one female at the bottom of that rook. If you had a good look and could pick it up in your hand, they won't harm you, you would see there's a mating pair, tail-to-tail mating, and the other males were just sort of hopefuls. Do they sting? Male ivy bees can't sting because the, the stinger is part of the female reproductive system. The female ivy bees can sting, but the sting is very puny, no worse than a stinging nettle, and they're extremely reluctant to sting. If we spent the whole day here rolling around, and not that we're going to, we might, if we were unlucky, get one sting. In honeybees, the vast majority of the species are female. Is that the same here with the ivy bee? No, in the ivy bee, we have an approximate equal ratio of males and females. Here, at the aggregation, it's mostly males because they're looking for the females. But a few minutes ago, when we were looking on the ivy flowers, there were equal numbers of males and females. They seem to be doing very well in Ireland at the moment. Do they have many predators? In terms of predators, yes, there will be predators, but I think it's not very much. But what they do have is a parasite But that parasite, a type of beetle, is not found in Britain or Ireland. It is found, however, on the continent where the ivy bee came from to colonise first Britain and then Ireland. So the ivy bee has come over to Britain and Ireland minus one of its enemies. So that's that's good news. (laughs) Now, you've been studying these here now for a couple of years. Can you estimate how many ivy bees there would be in Ireland at the moment? In this area here, I reckon there's 25,000 ivy bees because there's 2,000 plus nests and each nest would have 10 to 20 cells to make a bee. In Ireland as a whole, there's probably 100,000 or more, but it will get much beyond that. And it all depends on how far they've spread. At the moment, they've got a um, more than a toehold in Ireland, but they're only in about less than 1% of Ireland at the moment. So the IVB is a good news story? I think it's a good news story. We've got an attractive new insect to Ireland, and it's not going to do anyone any harm at all. It's just um, more pleasure for those that like nature. Thank you very much indeed, Terry Flanagan and Professor Francis Ratniex. More details about the IVB on our website, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. Well, I think it's time to go to sunny Spain. Here we go. And here he is, Niall Hatch, straight off the plane. Niall, you're in there. Oh, what a lovely pair of castanets you have. (laughs) (laughs) You're very kind, Derek. I knew you'd admire those. (laughs) You were in Spain. I was. I I had a wonderful time. I was in in Barcelona, near Barcelona, to be precise, in uh, in Catalonia, in a wonderful place called the Ebro Delta, the delta of the Ebro River, which flows out into the Mediterranean. And I was there on the occasion of the Ninth Delta Birding Festival. Uh, And it really is remarkable. Funny, I've been to Barcelona many times and I never think of going bird watching in Barcelona. I'll bet very 
very few people who listen to this programme other than the birders have ever thought of it. Well Barcelona Airport itself is actually in the middle of a really good nature reserve. Is so it? It is, yeah. So it's actually a protected area all around the airport uh, which means that there's problems if they want to expand the airport because it's right in a protected course, zone. Yeah. A very good place for birds. In fact the whole um, the whole of Catalonia is, a, is incredible for birds because the mountains right in the north so you're up in the Pyrenees up near the border with Andorra and with, with France so you get all sorts of mountain species of bird and of mammal and of plant and all sorts of things there. Lots of amphibians and reptiles as well. Then you're working yourself way down through the they have steppes and plains they have wonderful forests but I particularly like the coastal areas and this area around the uh, the Ebro Delta which is roughly two hours drive south of Barcelona it's amazing. You've got this, this huge floodplain of the river, which has been cultivated by humans for a long, long time. It's the main rice growing region um, of, of that part of Spain. Uh, so there's a huge amount of rice grown there for the paella and all the other stuff that they do. So it's very much altered by man. But in fact, the, the humans, the farmers and, and the wildlife live in real harmony. If it wasn't for, for one, you wouldn't have the other. It's really... I suppose an eye opener for me to see such sustainable agriculture and the fact that um, you know, these birds they're in there they're clearing out some of the predators that would affect the rice there's various types of introduced snail for example and crayfish that cause all sorts of problems the birds are feeding on those there's a whole lot of birds at this time of year too because it's the migration season so uh-huh. the delta funnels them down through it so um, I remember um, a couple of years ago I was very pleased to see a glossy ibis here in Ireland a rare yes. bird a visiting bird I saw 50,000 of them in the Emerald no Delta No way you're yeah. joking I mean I think I went down to the birdwatcher in Nature Reserve to have a look at that glossy eye. That's right. It was kind of turning around Ireland if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> That's wasn't right. It? Yep. And people were coming from everywhere to see it and there was just one. Just the one. Now I was looking to catch a glimpse of it but you said you saw 50,000. 50, you better describe what a glossy ibis so looks like. A glossy ibis, I suppose from a distance you could mistake it for a very dark curlew because like a curlew they have long legs, long neck, a very long down curved beak um, but they're not actually related to curlews. They're, um, they're, they're a different group of birds and they're more related to storks and species like that. From a distance they look very dark chocolate brown, their feathers but up close you'll see there's actually a beautiful iridescence on them there's all sorts of bronzy and glossy greenish colours and hues in them hence, hence the name glossy ibis and this then long down curved beak that they used to probe in, in the rice fields and to feed on all the different snails and things that you would find there and uh, what happens then in the evening in the delta you have clouds of thousands of these birds almost like a starling murmuration oh, wow. but these birds are really large coming in and they're actually then coming to roost to sleep in oh, some of these fantastic. rice fields in this area and while that's going on you have um, thousands of flamingos flying oh. overhead all this wonderful pink you see warblers singing all around you and it's absolutely spectacular and it's all fringed by this lovely range of mountains um, I got to go up to the mountains as well because I, I love the mountains and I uh, I know that uh, last week on the programme we were talking about uh, the wild goats here in Ireland well I saw actually my first Spanish ibex the Spanish wild goat that's in the mountains there uh, so that was a new mammal for me and it's a real really exciting actually to see wildlife like that watching this wild goat with its two kids I saw them sort of panic or look up there's a golden eagle flying right overhead and the golden eagle be a predator on the kids and all that this, this was just an hour from the delta it was absolutely incredible well I saw something wonderful on Hoth Head the other day oh, tell we me. were out there filming for Back from the Brink which will be aired next year on RT television filming the old Irish goat and they've mm. been brought in to manage the fire breaks on Hoth Head to keep the gorse fires down and we saw some goats the old Irish goat variety and flying overhead a buzzard which was mm. mewing the entire time so similar but different to your scene yes, yeah, there's, there's lots of parallels <laughs> and speaking there. of flamingos Niall I came across an article the other day about a black flamingo which was recorded in Cyprus some years ago mm. we're going to be talking about pigmentation and spotless giraffes <laughs> very <laughs> shortly uh, one that was born in a zoo in Tennessee, if I'm not mistaken, and one in a game reserve in Namibia. 
But have you ever heard of a black flamingo? I haven't. I'd love to see a picture of that. I mean, this can but happen. Black. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm actually, but still, look, I mean, sometimes that can happen because of staining in the feathers. So yeah. if you've got oil on it or something. But sometimes you do have a thing called melanism, where it's the opposite of albinism, where the, the feathers become overly dark. Um, so there's too much pigment in them. With flamingos, um, flamingos do have black feathers in their wings. So that there is black in their genes. Um, but what happens, of course, that pink colour in flamingos, it's produced by their food. Flamingo mm. feathers are normally white. So maybe a simple mutation could cause that difference in the feathers. The pink coloration comes from, it's mainly the coloration from, from the carotenes, they call them, from the little brine shrimp that they feed on. Flamingos tend to be in very salty areas. So you find them in these uh, in these salt pans they have around the Aero Delta. And I think that's why it attracts so many of these flamingos in. Uh, where you get big concentrations of migratory birds as well, you get lots of and lots of predators coming to feed on them. So we had loads of birds of prey. I think we had 11 or 12 different species, including plenty of ospreys. I was delighted to see that. We've been talking about ospreys a lot here in the programme yeah. in recent times. Um, and I, would, you know, I was thinking perhaps one of these ospreys flying past. Who knows? It could well, be one I of those reintroduced Irish Well, I some good news birds. because you were away. You probably missed it, but I doubt it. I'm sure you were informed <laughs> of everything. Those ospreys have radio tags, not yeah. all of them, but some of the nine ospreys that are on the move already from Ireland, they are heading in the right direction. I believe one was recorded in Morocco. Yes, so it's great to see that that instinct is kicking in. Remember, these birds have only been in the wild for a few weeks and already they know where to go, which is, is quite remarkable. Um, but amazing to see ospreys there catching fish there in the Delta, but also amazing to see how many people this festival brought together for wildlife. There were three and a half thousand people there over the wow. course of the weekend. And they're all there to, uh, to to go to talks and lectures about wildlife, to go on field trips, to buy books, to exchange stories, lots of children's events and activities. I was actually really impressed by how many kids were there. Did you speak to anybody when you were there? I I'm did. Sure you spoke to lots of people. <laughs> I, I but did. have you any audio for us? Even just a little clip, a minute or so. But you know me, Derek, I would never go without having without having any audio for these things. I always bring my recorder with me. Uh, and I did. I had the great pleasure and privilege of speaking to a gentleman called Francesc Kirschner, who is the organiser of the whole fair there in the Ebro Delta. He's been doing this uh, for many years now. It's the it's the ninth. Well, it's going for 10 years, but there's a break for one year because of COVID. So this was the ninth iteration of this festival. It gets bigger and better every year. The organisation they're so good they even have their own currency at the festival called bimbos so you spend bimbos <laughs> you, you, buy, you buy a burger or whatever and they say that'll be 10 bimbos please so he's the brains behind it all very, man who's very very proud of it and so I wanted to catch up on to find out what exactly it is that makes the Ebro Delta so fantastic for wildlife we really are among the birds. As you're talking, there are loads of flamingos flying behind you. I never get tired of seeing those. Uh, we have um, lots of egrets around us. There's glossy ibis, all of these amazing birds. What is it about the delta that makes it so special for so many different species? Well, the delta, uh, as many people probably know, it's, uh, it's the end of the River Ebro. And it's probably one of the most classical or with, with a very nice shape as a delta. It uh, has a triangle with two peninsulas, one on the north and one on the south. And all the, the periphery of this, of this land, who is completely flat, is plenty of lagoons and areas, marshes and areas close to the sea with an intertidal waters. And this is a heaven for the migrating birds and for the wetland birds. So it's a, the place in Catalonia where more different species have been recorded since there is uh, records of them and it's a place that is fantastic. And the Delta Breeding Festival itself is held in an area called Mon Natura Delta, who is just a, a small piece of land in between two lagoons. One that is very famous is La Tancada, usually plenty of flamingos, and then another area that is more like marshes that had been, in fact, there is a saltworks area that has been recovered as natural wetlands. 
Thank you very much indeed. Francesque, sounds like a wonderful place to visit. When is the best time to go, by the way? Uh, well, all year round it's very good. In the middle of the summer it can get very hot. I would actually say September, October is a perfect time because that's when the migration is happening. The temperatures are very pleasant. Uh, the food is great. It's and you probably catch a cheap flight as well. Yeah, it's very accessible, very accessible from it's Barcelona. Off season. You can also, uh, for people who don't want to fly, you can easily get to Spain now by ferry. It's a wonderful uh, wonderful travel down. You can do it by public transport and they've even laid on buses around the, the area of yeah. the Delta. So it's easy to do by public transport too. Well, listen, just before we finish up, Niall, we got an email in from Anne Halley. And Anne said, swimming this AM in Ardmore, County Waterford, September 21st. That date is important, September 21st. And saw these Brent geese. Are they exceptionally early? And if so, why? Asks Anne. Thank you for the email. And she sends three photographs in. Now, Anne, can I just tell you that we put them up on the screen as large as we could. And we can see a few old dots in the water, but I can't make out if they're bred <laughs> geese or not. But we will take your word for it. We will assume that they are. Brent Geese, Nile Hatch, 21st of September. Now, this today is the 2nd of October. What do you think? I would think that uh, this is actually spot on for when you want to see a Brent Geese uh, appearing. So although their keys are dots in the picture, I'd well believe what Anne has seen. Uh, They'd be among the first to arrive. I hadn't come across records before, so I think she spotted some of the first to come into the country. Um, But this is is exactly when you start to see them coming in. And then during the month of October, the numbers build. When you think about the journey that those birds have undertaken, it's quite remarkable. Those birds have come in from high Arctic Canada. Most of the Brent Geese that we get here breed in a place called Baffin Island, uh, which is a place that doesn't mean much to many people who might think a small island it's the fifth largest island in the world it's absolutely massive to put that in context uh, Britain is the ninth largest island and Ireland is the 20th largest island so it's way bigger than we are uh, and where they nest it, it's so far north that it's actually there aren't very many people around so when they arrive here in Ireland we sometimes might be the first people that these geese have ever encountered uh, which is why they're often relatively tame and tolerant around humans they actually breed further north than any other animal on the planet um, where they breed it's it's remarkably remote wow. yeah isn't it incredible that's a great one though for pub quiz. Isn't it? There you go. Um, and I and I you know I think it's amazing that some of these birds will have flown past polar bears in just the last <laughs> few weeks. They've gone across the whole Greenland ice sheet to oh get to us goodness. here. Um, they've been, and they, they arrive in Ireland and they, they come here to feed on well their favourite food is eelgrass um, which you find in, in coastal areas. Quite a scarce plant in many parts of Ireland now so people will have noticed they also will move into places like playing fields and parks. Uh, golf courses particularly where I know their droppings can be a bit pesky for people. Um, but um, it's all fertiliser for the soil. It works brilliantly. Uh, one of my favourite birds and what a privilege it is to have them uh, around Ireland. Uh, even in a, in a city like Dublin, to have geese coming right into the city centre, it's very much associated with Dublin and most of them winter along the, the east coast of Ireland. You will find them in many other areas as well. Great to see them coming in. So I think that uh, Anne's geese there are bang on time and hopefully we'll see more and more as the weeks go by. Now we can't let you go without hearing your castanets playing there. Off you go. Are you any good at it? I'm better at the guitar, Derek. <laughs> yeah, I think you are. By the way, do you like giraffes? I love giraffes. Wonderful animals. Absolutely. I think everybody does, don't they? And love hearing stories about giraffes. The tallest animal on earth that can reach speeds of up to 60 kilometres per hour. At a gallop, hard to believe, considering the size of the animal. Anyway, regular listeners to Mooney Goes Wild will remember our documentary about Zarafa, the giraffe, which was broadcast last December, Zarafa was a diplomatic gift from Muhammad Ali of Egypt to King Charles X of France in 1824. Once they decided to send this diplomatic gift, they had to find a giraffe. Not as easy as it sounds, they sent Arab hunters down to Ethiopia, just near the border of Sudan at the time. And those hunters eventually found a female giraffe which had two calves. 
they disposed of the female giraffe and they took the two calves. Each of them had their legs tied together and they were put on the back of camels and transported down to Khartoum. After that, they were sent down the river, then up the Nile, about 2,000 miles, all the way up to Alexandria on the Mediterranean coast. And they were being transported at the time on barges. It must have been an extraordinary experience for the giraffe, as you can imagine. They eventually got to Alexandria. Then they thought, how do we get it from here over to France? Because they would have to cross the Mediterranean. And by this stage, the giraffe had got too big to just put on a barge. So they had to put it in a sailing ship and they would get the giraffe to stand in the hold of the ship and then they cut a hole in the deck of the ship so that the giraffe's head and neck could just appear above it. There'd be space for it to have a look around. You can imagine the sensation that that sort of arrangement would have caused amongst any of the spectators. The trip took four weeks, which would give you a pretty good idea that it was a difficult trip and a fair amount of hardship was involved in that trip. They eventually arrived in Marseille and at the time they did, Zarafa, the giraffe, became the first giraffe to be seen in Europe for 300 years. It's an incredible story, and you can listen back to the entire documentary by visiting our website, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. Well, there was huge interest in the US media recently when a rare spotless giraffe calf was born. Finally tonight, something that hasn't been spotted in more than a half a century, a spotless giraffe born July 31st at the Bright Zoo in the town of Limestone, Tennessee. Officials say she is believed to be the only solid-colored giraffe on the planet. The last recorded spotless giraffe was in Tokyo in 1972. Zoo officials are asking for the public's health in naming their new superstar. To tell us more about spotless and spotted giraffes, we're joined now from Photo Wildlife Park by Declan O'Donovan, the animal care manager at Photo. Hello, Declan, how are you? Very good, thanks, um, Derek, and uh, hi to all the team there. So talk to me, first of all, about the giraffes you have there at Photo Wildlife Park. Yeah, the um, giraffe we have are the Rothschild's giraffe is what they were originally known as. Now, there is some questions over the the species levels, which we could discuss at a later stage if you want. But um, we have at the moment 10 giraffes. There's two males and eight females. The last um, young female was born on the 30th of April this year. Fantastic news. And has she got a name and how is she doing? Well, she's doing very well. She hasn't been, we have like a, a, an in-house name at the moment for her, which is Siobhan, but there will be a naming competition at some stage, I would imagine. So it's not an official name as of yet for her. Now you say you've got the Rothschild giraffe there. That's correct, yeah. Am I correct in saying there are four different species of giraffe on the planet? It depends on who you talk to. Um, the, I'm the, to most, you. <laughs> yeah, the most recent research that's been done by the Giraffe Conservation Fund suggests, and they've done a lot of genetic analysis of it, that there is actually four four species with seven different subspecies. 
If you look at the International Union for Conservation of Nature, the IUCN, who sort of list them as endangered, critically endangered, etc., etc., then they recognise currently only one species with nine subspecies. Now, probably the most relevant and the most accurate one would be what the Giraffe Conservation Fund have done because they have looked at the actual genetics of it. Now, they found that the um, Nubian giraffe and the Rothschild giraffe are actually genetically identical. So what they've done is they've suggested that the Nubian and the Rothschilds be put into the northern giraffe group. Now, when I look at a giraffe, Declan, and you'll have to Mm -hmm. excuse my ignorance, Mm -hmm. all I see is a giraffe. It's like nothing else on planet Earth. It's the tallest land mammal and it's covered with spots to all intents and purposes and those spots must mean something do they absolutely the coloration of the animals if you look at there's another species called a reticulated giraffe and they have very very clearly defined patterns with bold white lines between them um some of the other species of giraffe have a different uh, sort of blotches and uh, melding of colours going into them. So even within the wildlife park, our our rangers here will be able to identify each individual giraffe by the coat coloration. And what they look for is little differences in the shoulder patterns or in the neck patterns and that. So they, they all have, just like you and I, we all have our own individual sort of little markers and traits which we can use to identify them. In the wild, it's also um, used as a form of camouflage and that. So it is, it is very important for them when they're, especially when they're young, because some, some recent research suggested that up to 50% of, of calves in one particular area are taken by predators, mainly lions, um, before the, the uh, age of one year old. So camouflage and colouring is very important for species, for all species and uh, for the young giraffe in particular. So, Declan, having a patterned coat is important. Now, that report by CBS News said that the baby giraffe born in Tennessee was the only one of its kind. Well, guess what? Extraordinary news. Another baby giraffe has since been born in Namibia. I'm Annette Ulofse, together with my son Alex and his wife Karula, the owner of Mount Echu Safari Lodge. Um, Mount Echu Safari Lodge is situated in a game sanctuary which was uh, founded by my late husband, Jan Olofse, in 1975. There was no game sanctuary around here. It was all cattle land. And over approximately 45 years now, we have established a game sanctuary for about 40 different species. The species we have are all kinds of antelope, lions, elephant, and we do a lot of conservation for lots of rare species that occur in Africa. The giraffe today in our game sanctuary are almost 1,200 and ever so often a sort of a darkish giraffe is born. Some have a little bit of a patch on one side that is not spotted and just lately this little spotless giraffe was born. It's beautiful, got a sort of a copper color, just absolutely adorable. And we are all excited about it. It is probably just a a color variant that happens ever so often. But it is an exciting news because this doesn't happen too often. So Declan, what do you think is going on here? 
Um, there could be a number of things. Um, there are, a lot of people have said that perhaps the American giraffe, it could be a genetic, you know, from inbreeding and things like that. But if you if you look at the way stripes and spots are actually um, formed, they're usually, it's derived from a protein called a morphogen. Now, the morphogen is usually released when the embryo is developing in the womb and that. And the skin contains pigment cells and a morphogen which causes the spots will diffuse out, giving different colors from, say, yellow, yellow to reddish color or black or slightly, you know, sort of grayish colors. And these these form the spots and the colors of most species from butterflies up through to tigers and lions and um, obviously the giraffe as well. So it could be an issue with the expression of that, that the gene for the morphogen, which didn't basically produce enough pigments in the skin. It could also be um, an inbreeding uh, issue as well, which could cause this. And it has been seen in other species when they have been uh, bred together far too long, that a lot of the coloration sort of disappears from the coat of the of them. And you see it in species from Arabian oryx through to other, other herbivores, large, large grazers, that they do lose a lot of the color when they start inbreeding. And that's more likely to happen in captive situations. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. More, more, more likely. But then when you look at the um, fragmentation of the giraffe population across Africa, then you are getting to similar situations where you've got small, small little pockets of giraffe. And when you think of gestation of 14, 15 months, then it is, you know, if you lose an, an adult animal, then it takes a long time for another one to come up and breed and maybe you lose that one. So your population is declining and the actual availability of unrelated animals is reduced as well. So there is the possibility that this could manifest and it could get, get worse as, as um, time progresses. Declan Aina here. I'm just remembering the first time I saw giraffes in the wild. It was in Tanzania. I was out there with Michael O'Mara in 1990 and we were starting off in his jeep on our safari and off we went and of course we were hopping out of the windows of the jeeps trying to see anything. And then Michael says, there's the giraffes. And we said, what giraffes? Michael said, there's six big 17 foot giraffes over there can you not see them and we couldn't see anything and there we were bursting to see something because they were there and we did see them but the camouflage was perfect it was like the army jackets where there's all spots and things and eventually one of them moved or something and then suddenly we got our eye in and we could see them Michael was saying how can you not see a big 17 foot something and we couldn't understand why we couldn't see it so it's absolutely crucial it would seem that they have these markings so surely in the wild if one is born with markings then it is survival of the fittest. They're not going to be um, hidden away with their camouflage. So such an actual mutation or such an actual situation in the wild would not persist because the cryptic colouring of all of those spots is essential for keeping them hidden and more so I would imagine with with younger ones who are vulnerable to attacks from lions. So it it, it would seem that it's only a problem of as you say a very restricted breeding population in a park or in zoo that makes this happen but if we're not going to have enough of them if they're going to get islands of different ones like you're saying there's so few of them now that that this actually could be a problem and lead to a demise very quickly if having no colour means they're much more exposed to to being hunted. Yes I I agree 100% uh, with you. We've we've had this report now from Namibia but 
who's to say that there hasn't been others and you know in in other smaller populations now but we haven't seen them because as you said the the loss of the cryptic coloration meant that they've been predated by um other large carnivores you know before before actually somebody could take a photograph we were lucky that they did get a photograph of the, the spotless giraffe in namibia but because they can't camouflage, then they are very, very prone to predation and, uh, you know, maybe even abandonment by the by the parents, by the mother. Mind you, the mother is no dozy person to be worrying about. I mean, they can very much kick off a lion or see off the predators that are coming in. And it's amazing. I mean, I'd be very sorry for the giraffes. The giraffe only sleeps for five minutes at a time. I mean, talk about having a baby that cries all night. But the five minutes at a time, a total of only 30 minutes over a 24-hour period. Five minutes? Are you sure, Aina? Well, this is what it says here. So I presume this is what it would... Would a lie be written down and handed out in front Standing of me? Standing up or lying down? Well, I don't think they lie down. I never well, tell. No, they tell us. It's what's what I'm saying. This is what I'm, I was getting up to the question. I was coming to the boil. You didn't have to interrupt. Now, Declan, is this true? Do giraffes only sleep for five minutes at a time, or are the ones below in photo delighted with themselves, tucked up in blankets? Do they lie down? Do they stand up? Do they lie on their backs? Give us more. How do they sleep, and for how long? We have actually done some research on this, and using um, cameras at night time. And infrared, we have actually seen them lying down and they, they lie for maybe 10, 20 minutes or so. They'll get back up and they'll, they'll stand and they take they take it in turns. So it looks it looks as if there's a sort of a protection there that they not not all the animals will lie down together. So some of them will stay up, some of them will, will go down. So in the wild, something similar would possibly be in effect as well. Now, you have to remember how long it takes a giraffe to actually get get back up with those long gangly legs. So it has to be super vigilant of whoever is watching over them. So I would suspect, again, with smaller populations, it probably less likely that they would actually uh, lie down for any great length of time or in any great numbers. But they do, they do tend to, you can see them just with their heads sort of slightly drooped and they will stay in that position for quite some time. They'll wake up, they'll start ruminating, chewing the cud again, and then they'll, they'll go off and they'll, they'll walk around and they'll stop. So yeah, they're, they're active for quite, quite a large proportion of their time. And it is something that we have looked at because in captivity, it's not, you know, when we, when we go away in the evenings, we're not really 100% sure what they're doing at, at night time. So it's very important for us as, as um, biologists and, and uh, rangers and that, that we know and we can provide enough enrichment for the animals at night time that they will be, they will be kept, uh, kept going and they won't just be, be bored and you know, engaging in stereotypy. So the research into this is, is very important for us. Yeah, I mean, if they're to protect their young against the lions, they would have to be alert at night because the lions are, are prowling around, the, the, the female lions in particular, the brides, are out. And when we were continuing on in that safari, at the dawn, we would be going out again to see the kill. But the kill had always happened at night and you'd have the lionesses coming to eat, they killed and then the, the male who didn't do any work at all waited until the missus killed the thing, came over to feast and then the females and then there was a whole a whole um, order of animals coming to feed on the carcass. So I'd say they're a fairly formidable target if they get any notice at all that there are lion on the prowl. Yes, they, they definitely and the, the um, sort of defence mechanism that giraffe has 
uh, unlike a lot of other other large um, large animals, is they can kick in any direction. So they can kick forward, backward, sideways. So you know, again, if if you have something uh, a predator approaching you, then they have to be super super careful because uh, you know a kick from a large animal like that could could end up damaging the um, the lion or whatever is a leopard or whatever might be attacking it, and that then will affect their ability to hunt and that. So I think. The reports that, that I, I mentioned earlier was usually on young young giraffe calves and that so if you've got a pride of lions and the giraffe calf is, is caught by one, the rest can you know sort of uh, chase off the, the, the female and the, the calf then is and they're small calves, it's up to about a year old. After that they seem to be fine, they're big enough to be able to survive surviving themselves and giraffe and the calves themselves can actually run faster than the than the adults at times. Declan, I don't wish to appear too insensitive, but how do you prevent inbreeding from occurring among your giraffe population at Fota and indeed other animals there? Um, well, all, all of our animals and that of the animals that we keep throughout the zoo, not only giraffe, we, we know the history of them. So all our giraffe, we know from back in the 1984 when we opened first, we know where they came from. We know where they've gone to and we know how many have been born born here from from photo wildlife park so there's one coordinator within the european association of zoos and aquaria who will look at all the animals across europe they will then make the recommendations as to which males which females and that are best to breed to maintain the genetic diversity of the group so in situations like we were discussing earlier where you've got these small populations in africa and that and the possibility of inbreeding there, we try to avoid that by making sure that instead of just one individual uh, zoo looking after and trying, look, can you swap this with me? Can you swap that with me? It's a coordinated plan. So all the zoos in Europe get together and they decide, right, that the giraffes that we have are important with, with an animal in, say, in the UK. And we will, we will send our animal over there. They will then send an animal to somewhere else to maintain this genetic diversity in that. And We've in fact sent back in, I think it was 1990, we sent two giraffe for that reason to Perth Zoo in Western Australia. A number of, of our animals have gone to um, France. There's been some, um, quite a few of them gone to, to the UK and Northern Ireland and Dublin Zoo and that. The male that we have at the moment, Ferdy, he came in, he was born originally in Holland. And he came to us at three years old. So he's now our breeding male. So within the, the whole, all the populations of animals that we have within the zoos, they're all managed intensively to make sure that we do maintain the genetic diversity. Well, I have to say it's fascinating stuff. Declan, thank you very much indeed. You're more than welcome. Thank you very much, Derek, and Richard and Aina. Thank you very much for your time. And we should say that Photo Wildlife Park is open to the public if they'd like to go down and have a close-up with a giraffe. It certainly is. And they can come and see our uh, young female, four months old at the moment. Ah, she's only a baby. Anyway, a trip out of Fota Wildlife Park is always worth it. Thank you again, Declan. Thanks also to Aina Nilana, to Terry Flanagan, Richard Collins and Niall Hatch, our broadcast coordinator, Daniel Keating. And for the first time, but not the last time, I'm going to be saying thank you and welcome to our new researcher, Michelle Brown. I've worked with Michelle on and off over the years and she's back and we're delighted to have her back. So, Michelle, welcome to the team and to our listeners. That's all we have time for. Visit the website anytime you like, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. Until next time, goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. (laughs) 